Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As we gather for worship on the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, the texts are going to be the Old Testament reading, Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 through 10a, and then also possibly optional, verses 10b through verse 14. The epistle reading will then be from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 29, and the gospel text from Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. So we start in Genesis chapter 18 today. This is an account about Abraham when he's visited by God and really ends up dealing quite a bit with the idea of hospitality. And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So Abraham is our subject in verse 18. I guess object, Yahweh is the subject, appeared to him, to Abraham, by the Oaks of Mamre. It's another name that ends up being used for the city of Hebron, which is 18 miles south-southwest of Jerusalem. So Abraham is going to spend a chunk of his time living in Hebron. He's going to move around quite a bit from one place to another, nomadic, really, in a sense, in those days. And he's at his tent, didn't have a house again. He's living more like a nomad, wandering from one place to another in the heat of the day. So he's seeking to keep cool as the the hottest part of the day is upon him, so likely late afternoon. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men standing in front of him. We very specifically will learn in chapter 19 that two of these men are angels. And the third, based on, again, even just verse 1 that we've already had here, Yahweh appeared to him. We've got God and two angels who have appeared to Abraham on a journey, on to visit him, to speak with him, and also to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, as the text would continue after our reading for the day. That's not our focal point. And the, the mission of those two men, those two angels, not the task at hand, not for today. So, Abraham sees these three. We don't know from the text, really, truly, if he recognizes them at this point or not. Is he aware of who his visitors are? Or do they appear to him to just be ordinary men? But he's going to go to them and he's going to offer hospitality. So he runs. Notice that, right? It's not a slow pace, but a a hasty pace. He goes to meet them quickly, and he bows to them, showing a sign of respect. He refers to them as Lord. Again, does he know? It could well be 
to bow down to God, to call him Lord, those would be appropriate responses. However, uh, the word Lord used here, uh, Sarah is going to, in this very text, in verse 12, she's going to refer to Abraham as her Lord. So it's not only a title for God, it's a title for someone essentially who is master over you, above you, a title of respect even in that way. So Abraham could rightly be using this lowercase l, although the ESV text has it capitalized, of just a visitor, a stranger that he treats with high regard. So the text here, again, still not quite clear enough for us to know if this is known to Abraham or not. But he offers his hospitality. If, if, you, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So this is humility that he's showing. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. That's the first part of the humility. Uh, the first part of the hospitality is the offer of foot washing. And we know that from the New Testament, a very uh, dirty work that was servants' work, and the disciples did not believe Jesus should be washing their feet. The whole conversation with Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. So Abraham offers this, and then he offers them rest, that they would be able to rest in in the shade of the, the oaks of Mamre, and he's going to prepare a meal for them, that they may refresh themselves, they may be rested, ready to continue on their journey on the way. They agree, quite simply in verse 5, do as you have said. We don't see the water part actually occur. We can only assume it, uh, since verse 6 just jumps right into Abraham making preparations for the food. So it could be he had one of his own servants fetch the water, maybe he's already fetched the water, or maybe after instructing Sarah to work on the bread, he goes to get the water, and then the calf, we just don't know. But that's the kind of thing we're going to see here. Abraham continues his haste. So he had ran to meet them. Now he's going quickly to Sarah, his wife, and he instructs her, quick, with haste, to take three sias of fine flour. Now, a sia is seven quarts, so three of those, 21 quarts, that makes for over five gallons, if you think of a milk jug, five gallons worth of bread that's going to be made here. This is not a small meal by any means. These three men are not capable of eating all this feast that is about to be set before them. And it's not just bread. As we see in the next verse, then he goes to his herd. He takes a calf, not just any one of his animals, tender and good. This is a young one, similar really to the instruction that will come eventually about the sacrificial system for the Israelites. They're not supposed to sacrifice just any old animal but one that's a year old, without blemish, and so forth. Abraham takes a good one. He brings it to one of his servants who prepares it quickly. Again, we see that word. So now we've got a sizable amount of bread, and we've got an entire animal cooked for these three men to consume. And then he takes also curds and milk. Milk is... A rare commodity. Let's put it that way. They don't have the ability to keep milk cold. So you had milk fresh or you had not, not milk at all. So this is a, another rarity. As he adds this to the hospitality, he adds it to the list. And he sets it all before them. And then he stands by them under the tree while they eat. 
So they, the three men, God and the two angels, they eat the meal. Abraham stands by. He does not appear to join in. And part of this, as we know, ends up being the idea that in their time, in their culture, they didn't have tables and chairs in their dining rooms like we do today. The primary method of, of eating, the primary practice culturally, was to lay on your side, on the ground, propping up your head with one arm and reaching in towards the center to grab food with your other, uh, with which to eat. So Abraham is not sitting, he's not reclining, he's not laying beside these other men, he's standing by. So perhaps conversation continues and so forth, but he's not eating with them. He spared no expense from his flock, no expense from his home. He has shown a great, great deal of hospitality. Hospitality, by the way, is something that the New Testament says is a characteristic of the Christian. There are several verses, Romans 12, verse 13. Paul writes, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul, in writing to Timothy about the qualifications for our pastors, says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. He says that also, in, uh, that's 1 Timothy 3, 2, says it uh, of women in 1 Timothy 5, 10, and it shows up again of, of pastors in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the unknown preacher says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's always struck, I think, probably most Christians as a bit of an odd verse that you might have, unknowingly, you might have hosted angels in your home. And there's truth to that, like the idea that unknowingly it might have happened. Be curious if there's a, an intentional connection back to this particular passage, though, of Genesis 18, the idea that Abraham unknowingly has hosted angels. Again, we don't know from the text if he does or not, if he knows. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, Peter writes, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So this is a mark of Christian faith. It's also something that as um, the Lutheran Hour Ministries group partnered with Barna around, I think it was 2017, 2018, 2019, they did a three-year study of various subjects of faith. And one of the things that came out of that study time together was the idea that hospitality is a major indicator of faith for children when they grow up. Let me rephrase that. If if a child grows up in a house with a family that practices hospitality, they are more likely to remain in the faith themselves, to remain Christians themselves as grown-ups. They didn't, I don't recall, at least offer up reasoning behind that, they didn't say, like, it does this, that, and the other thing to help build their faith. They simply noted that there was a very strong connection. It wasn't a small connection. It was a big one uh, in terms of statistics. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So now they are speaking to Abraham. And they ask about his bride, his wife, Sarah. 
And Abraham responds with her location that she's in the tent. So he was before, he was at the door of the tent. Now he's by the tree, so not far off, still right in the same vicinity. And Yahweh then speaks. So we go from all three speaking in verse 9 and just general conversation to a very specific promise from Yahweh, from God, right here in verse 10. And this is actually building on an older promise, going back to Genesis chapter 12, that God had promised to Abram, still Abram at the time, that he would become the father of many nations and that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Abram is an old man, doesn't see how it's possible for himself to have a child. He will challenge God on that later on, saying, Eliezer Damascus would be my heir. And God will, again, reaffirm the idea that he's going to do this for Abraham. He's going to give him a son. As time passes, Abram and Sarai struggle to trust in this promise, eventually decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarai gives her servant girl, Hagar, to be a wife to Abram, and that through any offspring that might be had, they would be reckoned as, viewed as, uh, children of Sarah, Sarai. Genesis 16, when that happens, Hagar has a son by the name of Ishmael, who is then viewed as well, Abraham's son, and you immediately have trouble between Sarai and Hagar over all of this. Taking matters into their own hand was not the way to do it. They were not trusting in the Lord, but thought they had to do it themselves, and that backfired on their family, uh, creating all kinds of controversy and strife, and eventually Hagar and Ishmael are chased off. The Lord will seek after them, the Lord will provide for them as well, but it starts a whole other nation, a whole other family tree that arguably historically leads to the religion of Islam today. There's debate among Muslims about whether that's true or not. But... Genesis 17, after that has occurred, God comes to both Abram. Now, he comes specifically to Abram, but he's going to change both Abram and Sarai's names. Abram, exalted father, is the meaning, becomes Abraham, father of many nations. God changes his name to be a very specific reminder to him daily throughout his life that God has made this promise. And because God has made the promise, God will keep this promise. Every time Abraham is referred to by his name, every time his servant or his his wife or anyone calls him Abraham, he'll remember God's promise. That's the aim, that's the picture, that's the goal, and that's why he changes Sarai's name to Sarah as well. There's not apparently a name meaning change that Sarah and Sarai both refer to the Hebrew word for princess, but rather... Again, it's the reminder of the promise that she will hear a different sound that refers to her than has referred to her for the first, what, 80 years of her life? By the time she has the child, first 89, 90 years of her life? And really the same for Abraham as well. So here's the promise again from Yahweh, the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 10. I will surely return to you and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. I skipped over that phrase, about this time next year. It's an interesting Hebrew phrase. Uh, The literal phrase would be, at the time 
of the living. What do you make of that? Um, Well, English translations tend to take it as an idiom meaning about this time next year. It sounds to me, I mean, the time of the living, how long does it take for a child to go through gestation, to go from conception to birth? That that might be viewed as the time of the living, so nine months. In that case, it's not, you know, Sarah's going to have a, a, a son a year from now. Your wife Sarah's going to conceive now. I'm keeping my promise. And when I come back, you'll get to meet your son. That would be the picture. And so again, could be, I don't know about the Hebrew idiom there or not, but could lean that way. If Abraham did not know this was God before, he does now. A random stranger, even if they were a fairly wealthy to do respectable person, would not be able to make such a promise. This is something God alone can say. And God has said it. So that would be the text if your congregation chooses, if your pastor has chosen to stop at the optional 10a ending. But 10b through 14, let's finish the paragraph there. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, should I have pleasure? Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. So not only is Sarah nearby, Sarah is able to overhear the conversation. She's over, overhearing the promise that Yahweh has just made to Abraham, and her response is laughter. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but we get a couple of notes first from Moses as he writes Genesis for us from the Lord's inspiration. First is that in verse 11, they are old, advanced in years. Mentioned that already. Although we can look to chapter 17 to get a little more specific. Chapter 17, verse 1, Abraham's already 99 years old, and Sarah is, she's already 90. Chapter 17, verse 17. So when it then says that the way of women has ceased to be with her, that's a reference to her her period, her monthly cycle. And even at that, um, what comes after it, the, the hormonal bodily changes, um, all such things have run their course for her. Her body would appear to no longer be capable, not of just bearing a child, but even having a child created in it. And this is the miraculous nature of the Lord keeping such a promise. It's a beautiful gift that God is going to give to her, but she doubts it. She's not the only one, by the way. Abraham has also doubted it. But verse 12, she laughed to herself. Now, I hear many times people try to excuse this laughter, try to dress it up as a good thing that she's excited to hear that she is going to have a child. And so she laughs. She just can't contain the joy that is within her. I'm sorry to say that that's false. But it's false. If Sarah's laughter was out of good 
context, good reason, we would not have verses 13 and 14. Yahweh would not say to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? If her laughter was good, then she's not doubting. She's just overjoyed. But she's doubting. She does not think. She thinks it's too hard for Yahweh. She does not think she's capable of doing this. She's, she doesn't think it can happen. That's the, the context here teaches us what the meaning of her laughter is. So after I'm worn out, I'm no longer capable. Worn out like a garment. I mean, it's garment language, right? You have a, an old dress or something that you've worn too many times. What do you do with it? You toss it out. You throw it away. She's worn out. Her life is near its end. There's nothing left. Now she's old. Her husband is old. Now shall I have this pleasure? She recognizes rightly there that to have a child is something that is pleasurable, that it's a good thing to, to be pregnant and to bear a child. This is the opposite of the curse of barrenness. Now that could be a, a line uh, certainly to work with if you're a pastor uh, building a sermon in a time and in a culture where the gift of life is despised. And we can talk about that in so many ways, but just the overarching thing of not even just America anymore, but really the whole world on a global level, the idea that the gift of life given by God is not worth having and that we need to avoid it. I recently heard a podcast from somebody that claimed that we treat it like, not even like an STD, like the risk of having sex, you might get a sexually transmitted disease or worse, you might get pregnant. That's the way we've come to view life. Lord have mercy upon us. In fact, he does every time he chooses to create another life. That is his mercy. It's his patience. It is him not just snuffing out this world for the evils that we have done. Genesis 6 style with the flood. He promised he'd never do again. Certainly an angle on this text. And then I don't, I don't want to miss Sarah's laughter here as well, that the verb for laugh is the same word from which Isaac's name will come. So Abraham and Sarah both are going to laugh. They're both going to, to doubt this promise. And, and then when the son is born, they're going to name him laughter. As a reminder, again daily, just as their name changes were, a reminder of God's promise, a reminder of God's faithfulness, that even though they doubted his promise, he kept it. And so they can name him laughter as a reminder to themselves of their failure, but God's faithfulness. Verse 14 would be another possible angle to really zoom in on such a text. I mean, is anything too hard for Yahweh? The obvious answer to that question is no. But I mean, consider the impact that would have on your life. And ultimately, the impact that it means when it comes to the gospel. The atheist says Christianity cannot be true because people don't rise from the dead. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? Dead people don't rise. Jesus did. History even reveals it. Christians proclaiming it from the first century, from the very moment of that happening, but also non-Christians, atheists, 
baffled by it. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? And so as he has raised Christ from the dead, he will also raise you from the dead. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? As your sins have piled up, heaped up upon your shoulders, driving you, uh, weighing you down into the dirt, into the dust of death, and yet Jesus can simply lift them all off your shoulders, forgiven all of them by his blood on the cross. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? To take the the enemy, and this is Revelation stuff, I think I've mentioned this in recent weeks, but Armageddon, the final battle, uh, Christians fear the book of Revelation because of the battle that God and the devil are having. The, the, The devil is going to bring all of his forces, muster all of his troops against God, fighting against God and his church and his people. There's going to be widespread death and destruction. But that picture doesn't happen in the book of Revelation. That's our own concoction in our own minds. The picture of Revelation is the devil musters his troops for battle against God, Genesis chapter, uh, sorry, Revelation chapter 16, and it's over. There is no fight. It's just done. That's the battle of Armageddon. God says it is done, and it's done because he's God and the devil's not. And the devil pales in comparison. It's not even close. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? The answer is no. But beautiful, beautiful gospel that can be brought out of such a statement. We don't want to trivialize it. We don't want to put the Lord to the test. It's not too hard for Yahweh to give me a million bucks. That's not a good prayer. Yes, he could. But most likely, if we're asking for that, we plan to use it for ourselves. And the Lord's ways are not our ways. But there's truly nothing too hard for Yahweh. So indeed, he reiterates the promise that he said that she has laughed at. At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, at the time of the living, Sarah shall have a son. And she does. A little boy that they name Laughter. Isaac. Our epistle text takes us to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 29. We started in the book of Colossians together last week with the first 14 verses of this epistle written to the church in Colossa by the Apostle Paul. Colossa is a city in Asia Minor, or Turkey as we would call it today, that appears to have been planted not by Paul on his missionary journeys, but instead by a brother we don't know a whole lot about, Epaphras, although he has served in well, served time in prison. He's been imprisoned in chains with Paul before. So as we come to our text today, we, we get a little bit more of this letter as Paul shares the faith and seeks to encourage the Christians in Colossae. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So Paul greeting the Christians, the brothers in Christ, the saints in Christ, in Colossae, in the church. Verse 21 addresses them as once alienated, once hostile in mind, once doing evil deeds, once past tense, no longer. 
But I mean, consider this. This is what the scriptures teach of all unbelievers. It doesn't matter how good they seem. You likely have a neighbor, and I'll even use that in the the most narrow sense, a neighbor, somebody who lives next door to you. You likely have a neighbor who isn't a Christian. And yet, when you think about them, you don't think of all the evil, terrible things that they do. You can remember good times, nice conversations, times that they helped out when you were in need. It's not, it's not to say that a, an unbeliever can't do what is a good deed in the eyes of the world. But before the Lord, there is no such thing. All of our deeds are like filthy rags, according to the prophet Isaiah. We can't do good on our own. That we are alienated, we are hostile, we do evil deeds, we oppose God. And that is our starting point, that's our basic beginning point. The trouble with this is, as Christians, living in a culture that was for a long time primarily Christian, I'm not saying it was, was a Christian culture, and I'm not saying that this was ever a Christian nation that we live in. I don't believe those things to be true. But... There was a season in history of this land where the majority of people in it were Christian. And so these kind of ideas were simply taken for granted. This is what we were. This is what original sin means. When you're created in the womb, when you were conceived, you weren't neutral. You didn't start out good. This is what David, in Psalm 51, says, In sin did my mother conceive me. We begin broken. It wasn't designed that way, but it is that way from the fall. This is the message in Romans 3 and 5 as you, you talk about Adam and his sin being passed on. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the picture. Death reigned, verse 14, from Adam to Moses. Now, Paul's making a point about the law, but that's the picture, is that death reigned. Sin reigned in our flesh, in our bodies. It overcame creation. We're not neutral. That's the problem with most American movements, by the way, is is most of America seems to have this impression that if we can just fix culture, and this is both sides, by the way, whichever side of the politics thing you're on, if we can just fix the culture to the way we think it should be, then there won't be evil people anymore. They'll be taught properly and they'll live properly. It's the, the... I think it's called a tabula rosa kind of idea, blank slate. But we're not blank slates. That's not the way it works. We're not a blank slate when we come out, when we're even when we're conceived, let alone when we're born. We don't come out and then you can just write on us whatever's good, like a little computer program, then we'll go ahead and do whatever we've been given to do. The problem is that computer program has a virus from the start. We're infected by sin, original sin. We aren't a blank slate. We're already broken. And so you can write on us good however much you want to as a culture, 
whether the culture is doing the right thing or not. You can write as much good on that slate as you want, but the brokenness is still going to come. This then is the picture that, as I was saying, I think we as Christians have missed. We believed that our neighbors were good, basically good. We looked at the other side of the TV screen and we saw the, the news anchor, whoever it was, and we assumed that they must be good. They wouldn't lie to us. Why would they do such a thing? And we looked to Hollywood and we looked to, to movies and books and music and entertainment of all sorts and we, we thought, well, surely their storytelling is good. They wouldn't, they wouldn't seek to harm us. We looked at people who aren't Christians who are still alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We looked at them as though they were good. And the church is paying the cost of that now. We reap what we sow. Our children our children have learned through the storytelling. Storytelling has never been neutral. But because we believed it was, our children have learned the culture's ways instead of God's ways. We need to realize this. Verse 22, so that was our place. That's where we were. We were evil, hostile, alienated from God. It's all of us. Until, verse 22, he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. To reconcile is to bring something together again. That's the opposite of the alienation, to be separated from. We've been brought back together by his body of flesh, by his death. So Christ's death on the cross, his crucifixion, his shedding of blood has reunited us, reconciled us to the Father. That rebellion, gone. You want a blank slate? The only way you get a blank slate is through Christ. And to be fair, that's not even a good picture at that point. Because if you give me a blank slate again, if all Jesus' blood on the cross does is wipe my slate clean of all the sins I've done, guess what I'm going to do five seconds later? I'm going to fill it up with sins again. No, the, the reconciliation that we have in Christ doesn't just erase the slate and make it blank. It fills it. Christ fills us with himself in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is a, a connection to Ephesians 5, where husbands are called to love their wives as Christ himself loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might present her to God as blameless and without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So husbands are supposed to present their wives to themselves, to the world. It's not an easy task to die to self, to love someone else so greatly, and to see even, I don't want to just say see through their flaws as some kind of romantic mushiness, but to truly see them forgiven in Christ. And so you don't go around talking poorly about them. You don't go around saying, oh, my wife did this. You present them as holy. You present them as daughters of the king. And that's what Jesus does. 
for us. He doesn't go before God the Father in the judgment throne and say, Can you believe what that sinner did today? He took that sin. Jesus took your sin. Jesus took my sin upon the cross, upon himself. He did it for us. We've been set free. We have been reconciled by his body of flesh, by his death. And we are now considered by God himself holy and blameless. This is how he sees us because this is how Jesus presents us. Because he has washed our slate clean and it is now, well, it's now covered in him. It's the white garment of Revelation chapter 7 that the saints are all wearing this white garment that has been dipped and washed in the blood of the Lamb. We know, right, if you take a piece of cloth and you wash it in blood, it's not going to come out white. But this is Jesus, his holiness, his perfection given to his saints. White in that sense, I mean, you think of the bright, shiny, white fabric It's a picture of purity, perfection. Christ gives us purity. He gives us perfection. Our sin has been removed from us. If indeed you continue in the faith. I'm going to pause on that one. A lot of people in Christianity today believe that you cannot fall away. Once saved, always saved. If that's the case, why does Paul need to say this? If you indeed continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. That means they're in it already. They have to continue they have to be in it to continue in it. Why would Paul write such a thing if it wasn't even possible for them to fall away? So, O oh Christian, be on your guard. Be alert, be awake, know that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Continue in your faith. Stable and steadfast, what gives our faith stability? Christ and his word remain in those things. It's going to be the the point emphasized in chapter 3, although we don't get that in the next couple of weeks because we got it right after Christmas, in the first Sunday after Christmas reading. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What's the hope of the gospel? Salvation, life, forgiveness. We get to be with Jesus in paradise that never ends. And this is a hope. Not a worldly hope, but a certain hope. I hope you can see the difference. (laughs) See what I did there? That's a worldly hope. I hope the weather's going to be nice this afternoon. That's a worldly hope. I don't know that it's going to happen. They might forecast a nice day and then a storm hits anyway. I hope my favorite sports team wins whatever championship trophy it is this year. You know, that's an even less likely outcome. But that's not the way the scriptures talk about hope when it comes to our faith. For that, really, the book of Hebrews is the place to go. I mean, so many wonderful verses about hope in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Verse 6:11. Have the full assurance of hope until the end. Also chapter 6, verse 18, that might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
chapter 7, verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See, that's a living thing. That's an active thing. You actually do it. Right? A better hope is introduced. We draw near to God. It happens. Hope in, it's a living hope. That phrase is used in scripture. Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's the key right there. Our hope is fixed on Jesus and Jesus is faithful. So our hope is in the promise of Christ and Christ has never let go of one of his promises. He's never failed to keep them. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See that conviction word there? Hope in regards to our faith is not worldly hope. The hope of the gospel is certain, it is true, it is fixed, because Christ is certain and true and faithful. And it has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven. I brought that up last week in the epistle reading as well, that Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said that the gospel must be proclaimed in all the nations of the earth before he would return again. And so we see it twice in Colossians chapter 1, the idea that 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 requirement is already met. I mean, look at the word right here. The gospel which you heard has been proclaimed in all all creation under heaven. It's already done. That's not to say that we as Christians ought not to keep preaching it in every nation under heaven. We should. It's why we're here. But Christ's return no longer depends on that being done. Even by Paul's time, and we don't know the exact date of this letter in the 58 to 60 range, Within 30 years of the resurrection, even then, it was already done. We are just waiting for Christ's return. And Paul became a minister of that gospel and has shared it all throughout the region. Verse 24 to 29, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This starts out, this paragraph, verse 24, is the difficult verse of this text today. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's the difficult part, that something is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The Lutheran Study Bible doesn't do much to alleviate the the struggle here. It simply says that there was nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. And in a sense, that is certainly true that Christ's death on the cross is all that is needed for the Christian. 
His blood shed for you does it all. You are saved by Christ, by his death, by his resurrection. There is nothing that we can add to that. There is nothing we can do to aid that process of salvation. We don't even help. I mean, again, if you're dead, you can't save yourself. And that's how we're described in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses. We can't resuscitate ourselves, bring ourselves back to life. Christ has to do it for us. So what is Paul getting at? He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. The way to look at this, then, is through the idea that we are the body of Christ. So this isn't Christ's afflictions as in his suffering on the cross, his, his, his blood being shed, his death, and his resurrection. This is the idea of suffering and what suffering produces in the Christian. That when we suffer, this is Romans 5, the start of the chapter, when we suffer, it builds endurance, perseverance, character, and that leads to hope. And so Christ, in their midst right now, they do not see the affliction of Christ. They don't see Christ, for example, on the Garden of Gethsemane, Maundy Thursday evening, in the garden, afflicted by sorrow. They don't see that. And so that is not, in that moment, building them up. So this isn't about salvation. This is about the strength of of bearing his witness. And so Paul's body is enduring such suffering. He is, in the moment, modeling that faith for them because he's in chains. He is an ongoing witness and encouragement to them. Body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. The letter to the various churches in Asia Minor from Peter, 1 Peter, that when we suffer, we share in Christ's sufferings. So again, this is not salvific, but it is the picture of strengthening faith through suffering. So Paul is filling up through his sufferings. He's rejoicing that he's suffering because in his suffering they can see what they didn't have a chance to bear witness to themselves, the actual physical suffering of Jesus in his time leading up to his death. They didn't get to see that, but they can see the apostles who have suffered on Christ's behalf for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of bearing witness, sharing that good news. And so Paul has become a minister of this gospel in this church according to the stewardship from God given to him. So stewardship to be a caretaker, God has entrusted Paul as a caretaker of the gospel, as a caretaker of uh, the good news, as a caretaker of the church. He's been entrusted to, verse 25, make the word of God fully known. So Paul gets to reveal the mystery hidden. And it's verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So the mystery, God's plan of salvation. How is it going to happen? This is, again, revelation, what the start of that book ends up being about. As John, he mourns, he weeps in chapter 5. Because who's going to open the seals? There's a scroll that is God's plan of salvation, a mystery to be revealed. How are we going to be saved? And no one can open it until Jesus comes and opens it. So Christ takes this mystery. He makes it known to us. It's been revealed to his saints 
to them, verse 27, that is to those very same saints, which includes the church in Colossae, God has chosen to make known how great also among the Gentiles is the riches of God. So not only the Jews that receive this salvation, but also the Gentiles. The riches of the glory of this mystery. So again, God's plan of salvation, how great it is. Think of the abundance of his forgiveness for you. Think of all the sins that you've committed, that he has wiped them clean, removed them from you. How great this is. I mean, it's the picture of the overflowing cup. Picture yourself as a cup and just start pouring water in there. And eventually that cup overflows and it just keeps overflowing. And this is this is God's grace upon us. His gifts are more than we can hold. And so we share them. And that's what Paul ends up being a part of here. The riches of his glory of this mystery of salvation, which is Christ in you. And that's an even beautiful thing too. Like That's the mystery. Christ is in you. You are saved through Christ who lives in you. He is our hope of being lifted up. Of In this case, I'd even link that to the resurrection at the last day. So the idea of glory is to be lifted up so that others can see. Christ in us is the hope of glory, that we get to share in his glory on the last day. So verse 28, him we proclaim, Christ. We proclaim Paul, the Colossians, us, and we warn everyone, we teach everyone whenever we can that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Again, that present language, like verse 22 in Ephesians 5, this is how Christ presents us to the Father as his family. Perfect, blameless, without spot, such as a mature faith. That's a gift. So, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works in me, interesting phrase. Uh, The idea here being that God directs Paul, that God has challenged Paul, tasked Paul with sharing this gospel, and that God has not just abandoned him, but God is with him in doing such a thing. And so it is with us that as we uh, seek to share the word, what we're sharing is God. I mean, literally, Jesus is the word. So when we share God's word, we're sharing him with others. We're pointing others to Christ. And he guides us in all that. The Spirit's at work. You can't convert someone. No matter how hard you try, I am not capable of converting someone. Even if I really want to, the Spirit is the one who does that work. It's his task. And so he works within Paul. He works within us. And we, we are the hands and the feet. As that expression goes, we are the body, the body of Christ as he works through us for the good of our neighbor. Lastly, now that brings us to our gospel text of Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42 this week. This is immediately following on the the heels of the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus taught, and we read that together last week as a church. So if you're following along, you're, you're right in with the flow of the context. Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem. His face is set in that direction. He knows he's going to die. Now he gets quite close to Jerusalem in this text today. So, verse 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, 
who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So as they, the disciples, continue on the journey, on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus enters into a village. This is the village of Bethany. Uh, Bethany, uh, Beth, Ani, uh, from Hebrew, two words compound. Beth, Beth is the Hebrew word for a house. Ani refers to affliction or poverty. So Bethany is the house of affliction, the house of poverty. And that's the name then of the city, the village. It's about a mile east of Jerusalem. It'll take you more like two miles to get there by the road, if you're not just cutting straight across. And we learn here about Mary and Martha. Now, we also know from Scripture, Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus, and this, this family has connections to Jesus already. They've, they've interacted before. Interestingly enough, by the way, Mary and Martha's names are the same. So Mary, or Miriam, comes from the Hebrew and is then brought forward into Greek, as we have it. Martha uh, goes actually from Hebrew into Aramaic and then into Greek. So their their names end up both meaning the same thing, which is bitter. That's an intriguing thing, to think of naming two of your children the same name in different languages. But that's essentially what has happened. Anyway, the, the names thing is just a little bit of background for you. It's not really all that relevant to the actual text at hand today for even the city name. But instead, we have hospitality in sight again, and also discipleship. Those are both pictured here in the text. So you've got the idea of hospitality, as we saw in the Genesis 18 text as well. Think of it this way. Jesus, roughly 30 years of age, 33 years of age is what we often say at this point in his ministry, his time, is traveling with 12 other young men, most of whom, I think it's fair to say, were probably teenagers, upper teens perhaps. They, they're not old enough that they have established their own households yet. They haven't established their own families. They haven't established their own businesses. They're still working in their father's homes, is by and large the picture. The known exception to that is Peter, who's already married by the time of Jesus' call, which may well be then why Peter ends up being the chief of the disciples, because he's the oldest among them. That's a rough estimate, but I bring that point out because as Martha is getting ready to show hospitality to these men, that means she's likely going to be prepping a meal for them. Can you imagine feeding a group of 13 young men, many of them still teenagers? That takes a lot of food. It takes a lot of work, a lot of preparation. It gives you some insight into what's in Martha's mind. A little bit. I mean, we can't know for sure what she's thinking, right? But the picture here is she is wanting to do a good thing. I've seen some commentaries suggesting that Martha is just like going around sweeping her house or something like that. That likely is not the picture. 
she is likely seeking to serve Jesus, to serve the disciples, to show hospitality to them, to show them love in that service. And she has a sister, Mary, and in theory, in the practice of hospitality, both Mary and Martha would be working on this, and really even Lazarus perhaps, although Lazarus might be more busy entertaining, um, that is, having conversations, speaking about local events, whatever it might be. Lazarus doesn't even get mentioned in the text. Instead, we just see Martha working, Mary listening. So Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's listening as he teaches. So Jesus, just as he's done just about everywhere else, teaching about the kingdom of God, about faith, about all sorts of things, very important to life. Martha was distracted with much serving. Again, trying to put a best construction, positive spin on that, link that to hospitality here. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Notice that, and that's why we can know for sure that it's okay to put the hospitality connection to this, to serve. Again, hospitality, to serve your neighbor, to put, you know, we think of serving, a, you know, waiting tables, a server, a waiter. She's preparing to serve them. And she assumes, as she says this question, do you not care that my sister left me alone to serve? She assumes that the Lord cares. This is just how culture works. This is what, what happens. The Lord, the teacher, he should care that my sister is slacking off, that she's not showing hospitality, that she's not loving her neighbor. So, because Jesus obviously will answer my question with a yes, Martha continues, tell her then to help me. Martha did not wait for Jesus' response. Jesus did not say, whether he cared or not. And then we get Jesus' answer. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Martha, and this appears to be just a more generic statement about Martha as an individual, uh, that she is anxious and troubled about many things, that she has many worries upon her heart, including, uh, you know, how do I get this meal together for all these young men? But one thing is necessary. And that's the thing that Mary has chosen. Mary has chosen the better thing, and that's to listen to Jesus. I'll come back to that in just a second. By the way, there is a hymn in our hymnal, one thing's needful, and that is our hymn of the week as a synod for this weekend. So if if you sing that one, you'll pick up on the idea that there's actually an extra verse. So you can use the hymn anytime. But if you're if you're using it when Luke 10, 38 to 42 is being read, uh, there's an extra verse. Verse 2, it's all in italics to draw your attention to it uh, that you would omit otherwise. But if you're reading Luke 10, you would include it. So maybe some of your churches will sing that hymn this weekend. Mary has chosen the good portion, the one thing necessary, and it won't be taken from her. So this is that picture then of discipleship. It is the picture of sitting at the feet of Jesus. How are we saved? We're saved by Christ. 
We're not saved by our works. It doesn't matter how many meals you prepare. It doesn't matter how many people you show hospitality to. Not for salvation. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all. It's important to show hospitality. By showing hospitality, you're loving your neighbor. Think of Matthew 25. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Feeding the hungry. Clothing the naked. These are good things. Hospitality is a good thing, as we talked about with Genesis 18. However, only one thing ultimately is necessary, and that is to be saved. And doing good works does not bring about salvation. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, the Savior. He is there. He is present. This is the same Jesus who took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed thousands. And I just say it thousands that way because 5,000 men plus women and children, we're not told how many are ultimately there. He's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Jesus can get by. He'll be okay. The disciples will be okay. He'll provide for them somehow. Now, in fairness, again, Martha's still doing a good thing. But she's seeking to take Mary away from the better thing. So, if you have an opportunity to hear Christ, if you have an opportunity for your faith and also for the faith of your neighbor to be strengthened by Christ and his teaching, we would say through word and sacrament, through worship, that's the first thing. It's why we prioritize Sunday morning gathering together as the church. There are neighbors in your community that need to be served on Sunday morning. This is most certainly true. The The needs don't go away, just as Jesus once told the disciples, the poor you will always have with you. We should be hospitable, we should serve, we should love, and we have the rest of the week to do that. If there's an opportunity to hear God's word, for your faith to be strengthened and matured, delight in that. And that's what Mary's doing. She's sitting at the feet. And I love sitting at the feet as a picture of discipleship. We disciple as a follower. Um, it is one who learns from another. We are disciples of many things. If you have a favorite news anchor or news channel, uh, you are their disciple. You are following them. You are learning from them. I mean, how does social media go into this these days? You can literally follow people. It's it's what they call the option on various things like Facebook or Twitter. How many followers do you have? Well, TV shows, movies, characters, songs, musicians. We follow so many things. We sit at their feet. We allow them to fill our cup with their stories, with their things. But there's only one who truly fills our cup in a good way, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, this is the picture of discipleship. It's not wrong to recognize. In fact, it's good to recognize who we are being discipled by and then to keep that in check. It isn't wrong to see a news program. It's not wrong necessarily to watch a movie or or listen to a, a piece of music. But to know who fills us, that matters. And if we don't recognize how we are being filled by the other things in the world, 
And if we allow, thinking of ourselves as a, you know, a water bottle, if we allow ourselves to be primarily filled by the things of this world and there's just a little space in that bottle for Jesus or no space in that bottle for Jesus, that's trouble. That is trouble for our faith. So Mary has chosen the good portion. This text really pits hospitality and listening to God against each other. These are both good things. But when they come into the opportunity to do one or the other, listening to God wins. Christ for us. The plan of salvation of God from before the beginning of time. Your sins have been forgiven. He is our King. He is our Savior. And He richly pours out His grace upon us. Oh,